This is Mandite and the Apprentice Mage, Book One of the Mandite Chronicles, written and narrated by Stu Venable. Chapter Four. The next morning after breakfast, which I helped Jas cook, we set off for the mansion of the Governor of Ekota Isle. We wended our way along the raised wooden walkways that spared travelers the effort and discomfort of walking on Ekota Isle's white sand. Surrounding the mansion was a defensive wall standing nearly twenty feet high, also built from the same white stone. I imagined it took a thousand ships to carry all those stone blocks. Wide cannon ports broke up the ominous sight of the defensive wall with the muzzle of each massive gun extending outward toward the harbor and the sea beyond. Cannons used to defend structures were usually much larger than those carried on ships or pulled by horses to escort armies into battle. This was mostly due to the fact that once they are in place, they'll never be moved again. I was told that there were 36 68-pound cannons protruding from the wall, though I never bothered to count them. The whole place had been built to defend the mansion from pirates. It had failed, but I'll get to that in a moment. Several flights of stairs crossed back and forth up the side of the plateau to the gates in the defensive wall. I didn't relish climbing all those stairs, as I had just climbed a mountain the day before, and I did that to get myself back in shape. I'm not a very fit man, and I was now at an age where fine food and little exercise took its toll on my waistline and other places. As I stopped on the wooden walkway that led to the stairs, Jess spoke. "'Would it be all right if I go gather my things?' she asked. "'Your things?' I said. "'Not much, but I have some in a cave over that way,' she said, pointing toward a hill on the shoreline not far from the mansion. "'Certainly,' I said. "'I'll wait here for you unless you need my help.' "'I don't.' she said quickly. Clearly, she wanted her home to remain a secret. Very well, I said. Off you go. I'll be here when you get back. My legs were sore from yesterday's hike anyway, and the stairs leading up to the mansion would just make it worse. She returned less than an hour later, carrying a wide, flat basket that she had obviously woven herself. I glanced in the basket's contents and at once felt very sad and ashamed for looking. Within the basket were Jass's prized possessions, and it made me realize how truly fortunate I had been in my life. Within the basket were two large pineapples, a small brass compass from the shipwreck she had been looting, no doubt, a section of thin rope, some seashells, and a ratty doll, no doubt given to her by her parents many years ago. The doll's head was made of ceramic, but it was cracked, and a few pieces were missing. She had pulled strands from the rope to wrap around the doll's head to hold it together. The doll's clothes, which were worn and falling apart, appeared to be a miniature dress, similar to what a high-born lady might wear. Jess looked up at me, expecting me to say something. I smiled at her. She didn't smile back. "'Once we get to the gates, you could leave your basket with the guard. He is trustworthy, I assure you,' I said seriously. "'Are you sure?' she asked. "'Very sure. He used to be a pirate, but he doesn't plunder treasures from young women.' "'Only the Duke's ships,' I said. "'She nodded seriously, and we began the long climb to the gates. "'I had been told the gates were always left closed during the last governor's reign, "'but that was not the case now. "'The gates stood wide open. 
the only defense being a retired pirate in an ill-fitting corslet, lazily carrying a matchlock musket. "'Hello, Mandite,' the guard said. I'd never gotten his name, but he was a friendly fellow and knew me well, as I used to come here often. "'Good day to you,' I said. "'This is my apprentice, Jass. Could she leave her belongings with you whilst I confer with the minister?' "'Certainly, young miss,' the guard said. "'My name is Braxton.' If I'm not here when you leave, tell whoever is guarding to come fetch me. I'll keep it safe. His name was Braxton, apparently. He truly was a friendly fellow, as were most of the retired pirates that now defended the mansion and manned its impressive guns. Truth be told, I had not yet met an unfriendly retired pirate. Working pirates could be right gits. But the retired ones didn't bother acting intimidating. They'd lived a long time in a dangerous profession, and they didn't need to put on airs of intimidation. The fact that they lived to see gray hair in that perilous life was intimidating enough. We walked across the courtyard to the mansion. It was a two-story structure, all made of that white stone. There was a balcony on the top floor, and from it hung a long retired pirate flag. It was black, with a white skeletal hand shaped to make a rude gesture. A decade or so earlier... It had been the most feared flag on the seas between here and Eldamy. Now it was the symbol for an upstart governor. The front doors to the mansion were unguarded and open, just like the gates. We walked in, and I approached another retired pirate sitting at a desk, lost in a pile of parchment. I cleared my throat. "'Well, if it isn't Mandite the Mage, what brings you here so early?' said the short, rotund man sitting at the desk." "'Greetings, Master Greybeard.' "'I need to look in the archives,' I replied. "'Minister Greybeard was the right-hand man to Governor Cavill. "'They were both former pirates. "'Cavill was a pirate commodore, a captain who commanded more than one ship. "'He, in fact, commanded what would be considered a fleet. "'About a decade earlier, then Commodore Cavill, "'developed his exit strategy from the dangerous career of piracy.' He executed a raid on the governor's mansion and seized control of Ikota Isle and declared himself governor of the newly independent island state. Greybeard had been his loyal quartermaster for many years and eventually was made captain of one of the ships under Cavill's flag, the one with the skeleton hand and the rude gesture. Greybeard had a great mind for logistics that would rival the most studious ducal bureaucrat, and while Cavill was technically governor, it was Greybeard who kept Ikota Isle a flourishing trade hub and pirate haven. Once Cavill took the mansion, he put his most experienced gunners on the massive cannons and was able to maintain his hold on power for nearly a decade now. He was even able to repel the fleet the Duke of Eldamy sent to retake the isle. I'd heard that he'd sunk eight of the Duke's galleons and numerous smaller ships. The Duke never sent a second fleet. "'What do you need to look into the archive for?' Greybeard asked. "'I believe there may be another mage on this island. "'He seems to be trapping unwary travelers,' I explained. "'Greybeard's bushy eyebrows knitted into an expression of worry, "'accentuating the sun-dried wrinkles above his nose. "'Hmm. Well, no one's come to the governor with their patents, "'not since we took over anyways,' Greybeard said. "'Cavill doesn't bother with such formalities. "'If he did—' "'He wouldn't have let you ashore.' "'True enough,' I admitted. "'Oh, this is my apprentice, Jass. "'Jass, may I present Minister Greybeard?' 
Jess performed a reasonable attempt at a courtesy. "'Pleased to meet you, my lord,' she said. "'Not a lord, young miss, only a minister,' he corrected with a smile. Pirates, for all their faults, didn't believe in such things as noble birth, and I tended to agree with them on that at least. "'I believe this mage may be quite dangerous,' I said. "'Whoever it is, they're very well versed in very powerful forms of magic.' "'Well,' "'Unless they came here before we took over, I'm afraid I can't be much help,' Greybeard said. "'I suppose this mage may have come here prior to your revolt, "'perhaps remaining hidden, masquerading as someone else,' I mused. "'We do have all the old registries of patents. You're welcome to peruse them. "'Come with me,' he said, struggling to stand. "'Greybeard reached for a wooden crutch. "'He tucked it under his arm and hobbled to the back of the chamber.' "'Jess stared at the wooden shaft that had replaced his missing left leg. "'What happened to him?' she whispered. "'No need to whisper, young miss. "'I lost it to a twelve-pound cannonball. "'Took it clean off at the knee. "'But my hearing is fine,' he said, making a cutting gesture with his free hand. "'Cavill took a torch to it to cauterize it, to make sure I didn't bleed out. "'He saved my life that day.' "'Jess looked wide-eyed and a little sick.' We followed Greybeard down a narrow staircase to the mansion basement, where the official records were kept. The retired quartermaster set us up at a table with nine aging volumes of the Registry of Patents. He placed a few lanterns on the table and lit them, giving us some light. Like my rooms in the city, his basement had no windows. Without the lanterns, it would be pitch black here. I perused the first of the volumes. "'How far back do these go?' I asked. "'I'm not exactly sure. "'Haven't had the time to read them all, "'but I would guess four or five centuries,' Greybeard mused. "'Hmm,' I muttered. "'This may take some time,' I said apologetically. "'Not to worry. "'Hardly anyone comes down here but me. "'Take your time,' he said, "'making his way to the staircase. "'Put out the lanterns when you're done.' "'I produced a small piece of parchment from my satchel. "'I unfolded it and handed it to Jass.' This is a long shot, but these are the runes of the unknown forces used in that enchantment, I explained. Many mages include symbols of the forces they have mastered in their signatures. It's a way for mages to convey to each other their talents and specialties. While it's unlikely a dark mage would advertise such power, these runes are all but unknown. It wouldn't be that foolish or dangerous to include them. Besides, many mages suffer from hubris, and they can't help but boast, I said. I handed her four of the nine volumes. Check each signature carefully. Look for these symbols. They might be hidden among a more intricate design. Make a note of any you think might match. We set about looking through hundreds of pages of registered patents. It took us most of the day. It was near nightfall when I finally finished the last registry. I found nothing, I said with frustration. How did you fare? "'Nothing promising,' she said, handing me a parchment with two notations. "'What are these?' I asked. Two signatures with the symbol, but they're very old,' she explained. "'One is from 9702, and the other one is from 9530. "'They're centuries old,' she said glumly. Oh, "'Those two would be long dead by now,' I said. "'But let me have a look.' I examined her notes. "'Not two. One mage. It's the same signature.' "'Or very nearly so,' she said. "'That can't be,' I said. "'That would make them over a hundred and seventy years old.' 
Look for yourself. They're the same, she said. She reached for two volumes and immediately turned each to the proper page. I noted that Jess had a very good memory. I examined the older entry. The mage's name was Marwaleth, and within the final flourish of his signature were the two runes. I then checked the other volume. Again, the mage's name was Marwaleth, and the signatures were nearly identical, though separated by more than a century. The bottom fell out of my stomach. No one lives 170 years. Hell, hardly anyone lives much past 70 or 80 years. We need to get back to my rooms. There's an enchantment there to hide us, I said, collecting my things to leave. What's wrong? Jast asked as she followed me up the staircase. I'm not certain, but if these two signatures belong to the same mage, and this Marwaleth still lives, we could be in grave danger. There's an old rumor that some mages, especially dangerous ones, have learned to extend their lives. It's only a rumor, but I don't want to take any chances. We must hurry, I said. Chapter 5 as soon as we arrived at my rooms, I sent Jas to my library to fetch a volume. I spent the evening casting more enchantments to protect us from scrying, a method by which mages find people and things. My previous enchantments, called scrywalls, were good, but I didn't want to take any chances. More enchantments would provide more protection and give me a better chance of a warning that someone was trying to find us. "'Will you please tell me what's going on?' Jas said finally. She was at the big oak table in the center of the room, continuing her work copying the Xavier Birdstaff text. I sat down hard on the stool. I was exhausted from the workings I'd just put down on my rooms. "'There's a secret within the Collegium,' I started. "'They don't like to talk about it, for reasons that will become obvious, and they never speak of it to outsiders.' "'That seems to be a trend,' Jas said dryly. It's no joking matter, not now, I scolded her. There are some mages who very quickly forget the moral and ethical teachings of the Collegium. These mages use their talents to further their own ends, with no concern for the world around them. They inevitably have their patents of magic revoked, not that it means anything to them. They are eventually hunted down and forced to flee the duchy, or they're killed. It's a rare occurrence, but it does happen, I said. "'Did you find that volume I asked for?' I asked. "'Yes,' she said. She picked up a small leather-bound book and handed it to me. Upon the cover of the volume was the title, A List of Mages of Note, inked into the leather and written in my own handwriting many years ago. It was a list of powerful and noteworthy mages, both current and historic. Whenever I came across the record of such a mage, I would make a note in this volume, including their name, where they lived— what the historical records claimed they did, any texts they may have written, etc. It was a reference I would take with me any time I had the opportunity to visit a library. Such mages often wrote down their research and musings about magic, and having a list of such names helped me find these texts. The volume had more than a hundred pages within, and all but about twenty or so had notations of such mages. That name you found, Marwaleth. I may have heard that name before. I said as I paged through the volume. The earliest entries in my volume were so old the ink was fading, but I found a page with the name Marwaleth written at the top. It was one of my earliest entries. Jas, can you make this out? 
The light is too dim and my eyes are too old, I admitted. She began reading. Maroleth. Collegium graduation date unknown. Year 7116. Raised an undead army from the ruined city of Amana. Attempted a siege of Eldemy. The siege was broken after two months. Maroleth evaded capture. I stared at the flickering flame of the oil lantern on the table. The night was growing cold. I suddenly felt very old, which is surprising since I wasn't yet in my fortieth year. "'Put a couple logs on the fire, please,' I said quietly. Jas got up and did so. "'So who is this Maroleth?' she finally asked. "'He is one of those mages I spoke about. "'The ones that choose the selfish path. "'But this is something different, something worse,' I said. Jas looked at me quietly, waiting for me to continue. "'Maroleth was a necromancer, a mage who specializes in death magic.' Such magics are unknown within the Collegium, but rumors have always persisted that such power was out there for the taking, and there was a historical record of him. So this is more than rumor. There have been no reports, that I have found at least, of a necromancer since Maroleth's siege of Eldemy, nearly three thousand years ago. At the Collegium, there were rumors that necromancers of old could extend their lives. Some said they could transfer their souls into another body— Others said they hid their souls away, keeping them safe, so they could not be killed by traditional means. So this Maroleth, she said, indicating the volume, might be the same Maroleth in the Registry of Patents? Just so, Jas, just so, I said. I did not sleep that night. I sat in my bedchamber monitoring my enchantments, feeling for signs that they had been disturbed or otherwise touched by magic. I heard Jas busying herself in my rooms early in the morning. She was probably starting a fire in the stove to put on water to boil. I soon smelled cooking bacon and the scent of slightly burnt toast. Before I emerged from my chamber, I splashed water on my face and changed into my mage robes. I had not worn them in a long time. My mage robes were a source of painful memories. I had not finished my studies at the Collegium, and thus I never received my patents of magic. Technically, I was not allowed to wear the robes of a mage outside the Collegium. Mage robes were in many ways a badge of office, an office I did not hold, even though I was more talented than many of those who could wear them. But I wanted Jas to see the tradition she was joining in its full regalia. It might have seemed silly to an outsider, but the potential presence of this Marwaleth got me thinking. I was taking on a very serious responsibility— and I hadn't been taking it very seriously. I was teaching this young girl, who was mostly a stranger, a power unrivaled in our world. We had not yet discussed the responsibilities of a mage and the code by which we were supposed to live. I checked myself in the large looking-glass in my chamber. My robes were old and tattered. Moths had done their worst around the neckline. I picked up my stole from my days at the Collegium, it consisted of strips of silk dyed white, blue, brown, and red, symbolizing the four basic elements, air, water, earth, and fire. I affixed the pin of my class, a silver dragon, to my stole where it crossed my chest. I emerged from my chamber with a flourish, the lengths of my stole and robes shifting about me. "'We must eat up quickly, Jas. I'm going to show you how to scry,' I announced." 
Jas was at the stove. She was pulling four eggs from a pot of boiling water with a wooden spoon. "'It's almost ready. There's bread and bacon on the table,' she said, not looking up. I sat down to eat and waited for her to bring the eggs. As she sat down, I stared. "'I have not taught you some important things about magic, and I think I should do so now, especially in light of what we discovered yesterday,' I began. She sat quietly, not eating, and listening. "'The mages of the Collegium do not have a rigid code of conduct, but there are some things you must know. These are things they teach to all of us. We ply our craft at the favor of the Duke of Eldamy. Therefore, if we are called to service by the Duke or the nobles beneath him, we give that service without charge. While they may compensate us, we must not demand payment, I said. I was trying to recite what I had learned by rote decades before, but I was struggling to remember it. Here on this island we would replace the Duke and his court with the Governor and his ministers, I added. We do not do violence with our magic unless it is in self-defense or in a time of war, I said, struggling to remember the rest. Had I earned my patents of magic, I could simply read them, but I'd never earned them. We do not use our magic to settle common grudges. We do not use our magic to supplant the Duke's justice, only to enforce it, I continued. While we may employ our art for payment from freeborn citizens, we may not do so to intimidate, cajole, rob, sway the minds of, or otherwise harm freeborn citizens. We may not use our arts to sway the minds of the Duke or any under his employ, I said. I was now struggling to remember the rest and failing. So do I just replace Duke with Governor? she asked. It's not the person that matters, it's the sentiment, you stupid girl, I snapped. Jess looked at me as if I'd slapped her. I felt embarrassed. This was my failing, not hers. My apologies, Jess, I said. Our place as mages is outside of non-magical society. While those in authority may ask for our assistance, we must not assume their authority for our own. Mundane or non-magical society must be allowed to develop and change without our interference. Do you understand this? I asked. I think so, she said. That's good enough for now. If you have any questions, do not hesitate to ask them. The only stupid question, I began, is the one that is not asked, she said, completing my sentence. Just so, Jas, I said, smiling. We ate in silence. Once we were nearly finished, Jas spoke. What is scrying? she asked. Scrying is a general term used to describe the use of magic to find things or people. It employs several forces that can be quite accurate. The enchantments I reinforced last night are to protect us from scrying by Marweleth. You employ the force of magic to shift, redirect, or reflect any spells that might be cast to find you or something you wish to remain hidden. All mages put such enchantments, called scry walls, on their abodes. It's not easy magic, but nearly all mages are capable of it, given enough practice. And the first step to learning to lay down scry walls is to learn how scrying works, I said. That makes perfect sense. You must know how to do the thing before you can defeat the thing, she said. Exactly, Jas, exactly right. The thing to remember about scrying is that the force of magic must be carefully controlled and trained upon the object of the scry, I said. I looked up. Jas was staring at me with something like sadness in her eyes. Mandite, she asked. Yes. I answered.
"'Did you sleep last night?' she asked. "'Some,' I said. "'I had to monitor the enchantments. "'I had to make sure this Marwaleth, or whoever has been enchanting these stones here, "'wasn't doing what we're about to do.' "'Should I make you some strong tea?' she asked. "'That's a good idea, lass.' "'I'll need a pick-me-up,' I said. "'I drank the strong tea, and after half an hour I was feeling a bit better. "'We will go to high ground. Scrying works best there. "'The mountain top near where we first met should be a suitable location,' "'I announced as I grabbed my staff and prepared to depart. "'Side by side we climbed the trail leading to the mountain top. "'There was little vegetation here, but for the low-lying weeds and scrub brush. "'The trail was narrow, likely only a game trail.' Mandite, Jess started. Yes, I said. Those rules you mentioned, she started. Why now? Her expression was grim. When I first went to the Collegium, long before they began teaching us about forces, and long before we were assigned mentors, they taught us our code of conduct. It was literally the first thing we learned, I answered. I realized a year or two after those classes that they were not only teaching us the code by which we would live, but they were gauging our response to it. Unlike our later classes in the forces, our earliest classes were more like discussions and conversations. Questions were encouraged. Discussion and arguments were common. All the while, the instructors were watching and listening. They were looking for apprentice mages who either couldn't or wouldn't understand the necessity of those rules. They were looking for potential dark mages. Many students, nearly a quarter of them, were sent home after those first classes. For whatever reason, the instructors deemed those students unworthy to learn magic. "'But why were you so angry about it?' she asked, interrupting my train of thought. "'Maroleth,' I answered simply. "'You think... I might be like him? she asked quietly. Nothing of the sort. You seem to be a bright and good young lady, Jass. The constraints under which we live are not always things that people, even good people, will realize. Many of my classmates didn't make it past our classes on the code of conduct. They made fun of them. They scoffed at them. They didn't believe in their necessity. I'm sure Maroleth was one of those students. Maybe they didn't even teach that stuff when he learned magic. I wanted to make sure you knew the rules, I said. I don't understand them all, she admitted. I know. Few of us do at first. That's why I want you to ask questions. Maybe I can help you understand why they're so important, I said. We passed the switchback and the large rock where Jass and I first met. I tapped the boulder with my staff and looked at her with a wink. She smiled at me. We continued upward to the peak of the mountain. I love the view up here, she said, climbing further higher onto a boulder that jutted from the peak. It is a nice view, isn't it? I said. Apart from the island below, one could see nothing but ocean as far as the eye could reach. It was a beautiful sight, but also isolating. Apart from the single city and a few farms below, there was no civilization in sight. After we enjoyed the view for a long while, I set about to cast my scry spell. Scrying uses a minimum of three forces. The first is the force of magic. We use this force to create a connection between our focus, in this case the stone, and our target, the one who enchanted it, the thing or person we are trying to find. Having something enchanted by this mage will make this much easier. 
This mage has left the essence of his magic, his power, his very personality upon this stone. It should be very easy to create a connection. It would only be easier if we had hair, fingernail clippings, or something from the mage's body. But this stone should work well. Secondly, we must invoke the force of earth for the stone. And finally, we shall invoke the force of body to complete the connection to our mysterious mage, I said. So three forces, she confirmed. How do you use more than one at a time? It's a very methodical process. I will first call the force of magic, but I will hold it within my mind. Then I will call forth the force of earth. Once called, I will let fly a portion of the magic force, allowing it to attach itself to the stone. Once this connection is firmly established, I will call forth the force of body for the mage himself. Then I will unleash the other portion of the magic force, and it will very briefly connect itself to our mage, I explained. Unleash? As in uncontrolled? she asked. Clearly, she had been retaining what she read and copied from Xavier Birdstaff's book. Yes, Jas. Unleash. I shall exert no control over the magic force. I will rely on the magic's connection to the stone and the body force to direct the magic, I said. Isn't that dangerous? The book I'm copying says unleashing forces is bad, she said. I smiled briefly. She was a good study. She would go far. Quite right. Unleashing a force on its own almost always leads to disaster. But I shall release the other end of the magic force upon the connection to the stone. The force of earth and body will create a conduit, a path, that the magic force will follow naturally. It must follow it. It will be drawn to that connection, I explained. In fact, I continued, the force of magic must be unleashed. With scrying magic, that force must have free reign, otherwise it won't find the connection. It's one of the few times it's safe to utterly let go of a summoned force. She nodded with a furrowed brow. I could almost see her cataloging this information in her mind for future reference. I affixed a long leather cord to the stone and dangled it from my left hand. I closed my eyes, and in my mind I silently recited the rhyme for the force of magic. Then came the hard part. I was not well versed in the force of earth. Had I finished my training at the Collegium, I wouldn't have a problem, but I had been expelled. I need quiet, Jas. Earth magic is not my forte, I whispered. Stand behind me in case there's a problem. I heard her step behind me. I spoke the rhyme for the force of earth, a quatrain I had once learned. I didn't want to risk reciting it silently, as I didn't know it that well. I was lucky. I felt the connection between my magic and the stone thrum into existence. Did you feel that, Jas? I asked quickly. I think so, she said. I can feel a band of heat between you and the stone. Very good, I said. Now watch the stone. I envisioned the symbol of the force of body in my mind. Then I recited the rhyme for the force of body aloud for Jas's sake. My eyes were still closed when the unseen force of body flew from my chest, carrying along with it the other end of the magic force I summoned. It traveled along my arm, through the leather cord, and into the stone. I felt the leather cord attempt to pull itself free. I tightened my grip to hold it. "'Do you see which direction the stone is pulling?' I asked Jas. "'I do!' she exclaimed. "'It's pulling toward the east.' I opened my eyes and observed the stone. "'Shit!' I exclaimed. "'What is it? 
Jas asked. The stone and leather cord were now extended parallel to the ground, indicating a great distance. The stone was twitching and pulling toward the east, toward the Duchy of Eldamy. We have to go to the mainland, I said with reservation. Whoever enchanted the stone is in Eldamy or beyond. Why is that bad? she said. I am not exactly welcome in Eldamy, I replied. I looked down at the silver ring on the middle finger of my right hand. It had a small, nearly perfectly round stone, which many people mistook for a pearl. It showed a clear and pure white, which meant that the person to which it was tied was very far away. That would change, and the stone would darken. If you would like to find out more about my writing, go to stewvenable.com.